Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. Welcome to our brand new series, The Storm-Tossed Family. Storms are probably the most fascinating and intimidating natural phenomena that any of us could ever be exposed to. They captivate our attention and they really can scare us to death when a real storm is bearing down on us. And these moments become seared in our memories forever. I'm sure if I talk to you, you can remember your exact story of where you were and how it went for you during Hurricane Irene or Superstorm Sandy or any of the other storms that have come through our region over the years. I can tell you exactly how many days my power was out for each storm, which trees fell down on our block, you know, who came over to stay with us because their power was out longer. I remember all those things from every single storm. It's also amazing to see how much damage storms can do in such an unbelievably short amount of time. Now, the average tornado is less than 10 minutes long, but it can destroy a whole neighborhood. Hurricanes and typhoons, they're usually only in one place for about a day, maybe a little bit less, but they can destroy entire cities, communities, or even islands. And when there is a storm on the way, the last thing that we want is our family to be in danger. And so this morning, we're beginning this new series called The Storm-Tossed Family because every family faces storms. Some of these storms are just small skirmishes in the house, the daily kind of grind, the daily rub that happens about things that don't really seem to be that important, but a little storm crops up nonetheless. Or other, Other storms that we face are massive, and the hurricanes and the typhoons that can come into our families' lives can shake us to the core. Families are are vulnerable to storms. Families attract storms. Families can even create storms. I was looking into this a little bit. Did you know that cities themselves can actually create storms? Now hear me out on this. It's totally a thing. It's called the urban heat effect. And picture it. This is what happens. There's a lot of extra heat that's created within a city, whether it's from the cars and machinery, whether it's from materials like concrete and asphalt that reflect heat. There's less vegetation in a city than there would be in the country, of course. So there's more heat in a city at any given time than there is the surrounding countryside. So on a nice warm day, that heat starts to rise above the city, and that sucks cooler air in atmospherically from surrounding communities, right? So you have the heat billowing up, cool air coming in underneath. Now, if you have a little bit of humidity mixed in, which occasionally we have in this area, you will then start to get rain clouds and storms will form over the city where there was previously no bad weather at all. 
Do any of you in your families have someone who plays a spring sport? Little league, soccer, just me. The entire rest of the message is only for me. I should probably turn this way and just preach. The rest of you guys, you can go early. Now, if you play a spring storm, if you play a spring sport at all, you know it rains regularly on Long Island on warm, humid days between 5.30 p.m. and 6.30 p.m., right? Just when you're about to go to the field for warm-ups, the coach calls you and says, we're canceled again. This is the urban heat effect. We're creating our own storms. Families are the same way. The heat that is generated within families, when you mix it with the humidity and the atmospheric conditions that already exist, storms can be spontaneously created where there was none previously. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand this time, partly because I went so poorly the last time. But some of you have experienced these storms as well that just pop up in your family in a way that you really don't expect. So for these next weeks, we're, the six weeks that we're in this series, we're going to explore why God created families and why they have so much influence in our lives. Along the way, we'll uncover some practical tools for how we all can be anchored in God's word so we can weather these inevitable storms that await all of us. This series is named after a, a book by the same name by an author, na author named Russell Moore. We're also going to look to authors like Paul David Tripp, Gary Chapman, Meg Meeker, David Clark, and others. But as always, we will look deeper than that into God's word for his truth to see how the Bible can guide us into weathering these storms that are coming towards our storm-tossed families. So why don't you turn this morning to the Psalms. We're going to start beginning in the poetry of the Psalms, Psalm 107. This is most likely a psalm of David, although it's not signed like many of the other psalms are. But it's interesting because this is a psalm of thankfulness. And most of the tone isn't really thankful, but as we dig deeper into this psalm, we'll see there is a thread of thankfulness that runs throughout. And there's a unique structure to this psalm because it quickly tells four different stories. We're going to focus mostly on the fourth story, but there are four different stories contained in this one brief psalm. And so the introduction, the topic sentence, is three verses at the top. So we'll start by reading that. If you have the Bible in front of you, especially the New International Version, I want to invite you to read aloud with me these first three verses of Psalm 107, verses 1 to 3. Let's read. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Those he redeemed from the hand of the foe. Those he gathered from the lands, from east and west, from north and south. Okay, we'll stop there for now. Then it goes into the four stories, okay? Story number one tells about the opposite of storm. And actually, all these stories are about the redeemed, which is a word used for God's people, those who are redeemed. But in all, in all four cases of our psalm, redeem actually becomes used literally because in every instance, they face some sort of storm or adversity and God brings them back. That's what it means to be redeemed when something has been lost or is away and is brought back. So the first picture of the redeemed is in verses 4 through 9. It's the opposite of a storm. The redeemed experience drought. They have no nourishing rain, and they experience that in the desert until they're brought back to the city. In the second portrait, the second story, the redeemed are imprisoned in darkness because of their rebellion because of their sin, and they remain in darkness until God brings them back into the light. 
in the third story is similar again because these redeemed through their own rebellion, through their own foolishness, they go into some sort of general affliction and malaise and malnutrition. It's not absolutely clear, but they have no desire to eat or be nourished until God redeems them. And so the fourth one takes a different approach, and that's where we're going to focus today because this is the story of the redeemed who set out on the high seas to pursue commerce. These are business people who set out to follow the calling of God in their life to do business. So look at verse 23. It says, Some, that is some of the redeemed, went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. See, this fourth story is different because here the redeemed have a purpose and a strategy. Up until this point in our psalm, all of the redeemed have either been wandering lost in the desert or experiencing darkness and malaise because of their own rebellion, their own sin. And we sort of intuitively get that. When we've backed ourselves into a corner, when we and our family have made some bad decisions and now difficulty has come our way, we kind of get it. Now, I'm not saying anyone deserves pain. I'm not saying anyone deserves punishment, that anyone deserves grief, but it resonates with us. We know that. We're like, well, I sort of brought this on myself. It really resonates us when someone else brings it upon themselves. Like, yeah, I see how you got there. Do you need me to remind you what you did in order to get to that spot? We sort of get that. Now, luckily, God's grace still meets us there, and thankfully. But these merchants, again, are different because they weren't doing the wrong thing. They weren't about rebellion. They weren't about their sin. They were about the right things. They were going out to do what they were supposed to do. They set out bravely to pursue their business. And in the ancient world, to set out on a ship as a merchant is an act of courage, an act of bravery. In those days, the sea was regarded as the ultimate, most fearsome thing. Navigation techniques were primitive, so it was very possible to get lost. Everyone knew that there were things that lived in the deep that you weren't really sure what they were. And if you fell off your ship, those things might find you. Some of these fears still exist today, by the way. And they said, no, it doesn't matter. We're setting out on the seas to pursue our business. Because when it comes to storms, being busy doing the right things does not keep the storms away. And that was the case for our merchants. Verse 25 says, For he spoke and stirred up a tempest, a tempest that lifted the high waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to their depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. They were at their wits' end. So the storms came. This is not a surprise. They were out on the ocean and a storm came. And verse 26 describes their harrowing experience. The waves were so huge that the poet describes them as extending from the heavens to the depths. And this is intentional exaggeration. He's saying they extend from higher than you can possibly believe to lower than you can possibly believe. And that the waves were so bad that the sailors could no longer walk in a straight line as though they were drunk. Any ship described in the Psalms would not have been a big ship but more like a boat. This would have been a very scary thing. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a sailboat in a storm, but it's a very busy place. 
The first thing you need to do when the wind kicks up in your sailboat is you need to reef the sails, which is a way of making the sails smaller so they catch less wind. Then your head sail, you might need to change it out completely for a smaller one or put it away. And by the way, taking down sails in heavy wind is very, very difficult. It's also critical for you to set a course when you're in a storm. You may try to continue to your destination. Or you might change course relative to the wind for safety. Or again, you might change course to try to run for land or for an island that you can go to the leeward side to get out of the wind. And steering a boat in a storm is not a one or two person job. It's probably at least three people. One white knuckled person with their hands on the wheel. Another one looking at the compass. And a third person just trying to coordinate between them. There's so much more that's going on. You have to check on the cargo on your ship. These are merchants after all. They have something to sell. And if their cargo is destroyed during the storm, they would probably go out of business. But if they keep too much cargo and the boat is too heavy during the storm, well, now they could probably lose their life. The captain has to watch out for the crew. You need to make sure they're wearing the right safety equipment. You probably need to have lines on them that lead back to the boat so that if they fall off, you can retrieve them. But you need to make sure they have a knife on them so that if they're dragged under the boat, they can cut that same line. And if you have passengers on your boat, that's even worse because they're guaranteed to just be in the way and also be at risk of everything that's flying around the boat. So a boat in a storm is a very busy place. We experience that same thing so often when the storms of our life come, we become very, very busy. Literally, when the storms come, we have to prepare, right? So if a hurricane is coming this fall, well, you're going to put away your lawn furniture more than likely. You're going to check everything in your property that needs to be put away. You should check the storm drains on your street to make sure that it's not going to flood. If we're getting a snowstorm later in the year, you're going to check for ice melt and shovels. And then, of course, you have to go to Stop and Shop and buy all the food. I don't know why, but you have to go to Stop and Shop and buy all the foods. I think the weather must be sponsored by Stop and Shop. <laughs> I think they make a ton of money every single time that there's a storm. I remember when Hurricane Irene came, I wanted to help my family to prepare. So I went to the grocery store. I don't usually go to the grocery store. So I didn't know where anything was or what we usually buy. Or, well, pretty much anything. So I was wandering around the store trying to figure out how I could help the family get ready for Hurricane Irene. And I thought, what could we keep? You know, we might not have power for days. I'm like, what should I buy? I, well, stuff that doesn't go bad. All right, I'm going to buy, and I was looking, I'm going to buy stew. That's what I'm going to buy because we can heat it in a pot on the barbecue. So I bought a bunch of cans of stew, and then I think I bought, like, some candy and some bottled water and, I don't know, something else. So I get home, and my wife's like, you know, what you got there? Like, hey, bought us this stew to be ready for the storm. She looks at it, and she's like, half of our family is allergic to the ingredients in this stew. I'm like, oh, all right. And we have plenty of water, and we definitely don't need any candy. So I'm like, I, I don't know. I just thought it was helping us get ready for the storm. I was busy. I was doing stuff. But I didn't do anything that actually helped. There's an example that we see from the sailors in the psalm because they did something else, and it seemed simple, but it's incredibly profound because in verse 28, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. In the middle of the harrowing, horrifying experience of a massive storm, they cried out to God for help. How often do we forget to do this? 
We throw ourselves directly into preparing and fighting the storm before we ever cry out to the Lord. The most important principle for any family to hold to in a storm would be to learn a habit of prayer. Now, I know right now that you are totally not shocked that you came to church and we're going to tell you, you know, you really should pray more. You're like, yeah, Chris, we get this. A lot of you grew up going to Sunday school like I did. We used to call it Sunday school before it was Kids Quest with a Z, like it, now the cool names. I love it, but we didn't used to call it that. So when you went to Sunday school, every Sunday schooler knows there are only three answers that you need for Sunday school. Answer number one is always Jesus. Answer number two is always read your Bible. Come on, Baptists, help me out. Number two is read your Bible. Three is Pray. Those are the only three answers you ever need for Sunday school. Nothing else. You don't even have to listen to the lesson. Because when the teacher suddenly calls on you to prove that you weren't listening, just say one of those three things and you'll be fine. If you want to be super spiritual, if you want to impress the teacher and the rest of the class, you would, of course, say all three, right? <laughs> this is how it kind of works in the church. We tell you to pray, and I totally get that. But I want to talk about why we should pray. Our families are in a storm. You're saying, yes, Chris, I, I know the family's in a storm. I got the postcard. I'm not surprised. We sent them to 75,000 of your closest friends and neighbors. Say, yes, my family's in a storm. Why do you think I'm here? There are so many storms that face our families. It's not uncommon for spouses to fight about how you should raise the kids. Siblings fight with each other when they're young. They use their fists and hands to injure each other. When they're older, they use their relationships, their money, and their influence to injure each other. There may be no greater storm in all the world than a couple going through divorce. And we all know parenting is an absolute hurricane from the day these kids are born. We are also caught up in the storm of culture. Any family trying to follow God's way will immediately be at odds with the culture. Your viewpoints will be challenged. Your standards will be challenged. Your values will be challenged. Just when you think you're finding a new way to win, new issues that you didn't even know existed will rise up to become the next battleground. This storm will never end. But you are still engaged in a larger storm than that. You are engaged, in fact, in the storm of the century. Think back to the very beginning of man. God created Adam and Eve. They were perfect and sinless. There was perfect unity and partnership between them. The perfect partnership between them was meant to be an example of the perfect partnership between us and God, the complementary relationship that can exist. But then sin entered the world. Adam and Eve felt guilt and shame for the very first time. And they had the first marriage fight in the history of the world. Do you want to read the first marriage fight in the history of the world? It's always fun to see other people fighting when it's not your own, right? You can kind of peer in. All right, so this is what happened. God came on the scene. He's speaking to Adam, and he said, Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. He immediately blames her. Now, the Bible is, believe it or not, the Bible's condensed. It doesn't tell every part of every conversation. So we don't get to know what Eve said next. But I think we can guess. I'm sure it involved Adam for the first time in the history of the world sleeping alone on the couch of the Garden of Eden. 
Because she's going, oh, I gave you, nice, nice. In fact, Adam is so good at this, if you notice, he was even willing to throw a little shade at God. He's like, the woman that you put here with me. And men have been doing this ever since, right? Not my fault, not my fault, her fault, her fault, and a little bit of her friends. <laughs> right? The first fight in the history of mankind. And as a result of their sin, the relationship between them was damaged forever. And it actually got worse and worse and worse. Their first two sons were Cain and Abel. If you've read this part of the Bible, you know. One son killed the other. And the son who survived, he was banished forever, never to be seen from again. That is real pain to see your family destroyed like that. If you keep reading the Bible, you'll see stories of father and son estrangement, sexual blackmail, inappropriate physical relationships between parents and grown children. You'll see a husband who's willing to prostitute his wife for political gain two times. This is all in the very first book of the Bible. And it gets worse. Polygamy, abandonment, rivalry. Part of working on our storm-tossed families is understanding that we are all one big dysfunctional family. If you're a guest here today, Welcome. <laughs> we are all one big dysfunctional family. That family started with Adam and Eve and extends to all of us. That's why Jesus' story of the prodigal son really resonates with us. Because every family has a prodigal. If you're thinking, well, my family doesn't have a prodigal. Well, then that prodigal was probably you. It resonates with us. And our family is in a storm, and that storm is spiritual. The enemy of God has been at war against the family from the very beginning. The storms that come at your family are not random. They are hand-selected by an adept enemy who has made it his life's mission to destroy whatever you hold dear and hope it causes you to hate God and reject him forever. That's why we can't simply develop a magic formula for how to have the perfect Christian family. So in this series, unfortunately, we won't be able to say, here are the five things you should do every week with your family. Or here's the exact amount of time you should let your children look at screens each day. Or if you do these three things, your marriage will flourish in that one way, men, that you really wish that it would just a little bit more. Just do these three things. It can't be that formulaic, and here is why. There's no algorithm that will fix your family. Your struggle is not against the pressures of this world exclusively. It is also against an enemy who is smarter and more insidious than you. One of the authors we're looking for to inspiration uh, you know, in this series is a man named Paul David Tripp. And he, he's, he's very excellent. We'll probably talk about a couple of his books during the series. One of them in 2001 he wrote called Age of Opportunity. It's a parenting book. It's a really good book. And over the years, parents would give Mr. Tripp feedback on how it was going. And he says in a later publication, he says, you know, I was really sad to realize how many families took the tips and tricks and ideas and separated them from the principles of the gospel that they were built on and just simply ran with that part of the story. In fact, it bothered Tripp so much that he wrote a new book called 14 Gospel Principles That Can Radically Change Your Family. He figured maybe if I put it right in the title, people will get it. See, if the storms facing our families were easy to overcome, we would do it on our own. We would simply develop a five-step approach, a comprehensive plan. But these storms are impossible for us to overcome on our own. That is why we need the cross. Stay with me for a minute. 
God created everything in this world after the pattern of Jesus. Everything in this world, seen and unseen, is summed up in Jesus. That means he is the pattern and blueprint of everything. Everything that was created was created through him and was created for him, and Jesus holds all of it together. And then what God has done is he has embedded in that creation smaller pictures of the beauty that will eventually be realized in the gospel. And family is one of those pictures that God created to say this is what the gospel could and will be. The reason we long to belong to each other is because we were created by God the Father. And it is part of our creation to yearn to be back with him. Marriage isn't about companionship or even physical pleasure. It's about seeing the union that can exist between a man and a woman as an example of Christ and his church. Parenting isn't about leaving a legacy, but it's a reflection of the fatherhood of God and the warm belonging of the Holy Spirit. So then, it is no coincidence that the enemy targets these relationships because they are created to be a reflection of the gospel that is in Jesus. Because if the enemy can destroy a marriage, well, both of the former spouses will struggle with intimacy. They will struggle to give themselves fully to God and be completely vulnerable before him. They'll feel shame and guilt after divorce is complete. If the enemy can cause a man to be a terrible father, it will be more difficult for his children to see God the Father as the perfect loving father. If the enemy can cause a woman to be a terrible mother, it will be hard for her children to yearn for the safety and security of our heavenly home. If the enemy can cause dysfunctional sibling rivalry, the resulting individuals will struggle to engage in Christian community, to see the true sisterhood and brotherhood of the family of Christ in perfect, authentic relationships. All of this storm damage is a major victory for the enemy of God because in every single instance, the picture that we could be seeing, the reflection of God, is becoming more and more clouded and obscured until we struggle to recognize it as anything resembling God at all. But do you know what stops any storm? All the world's biggest storms start in the same place, right? Where do they start? They start in the ocean, right? They always start in the ocean, the world's biggest storms. And they feed off of the warm temperature of the water. So the warmer the water is, the bigger the storm gets. And the storms build and build and build. But there is one thing that kills these storms every single time. No hurricane or typhoon has ever survived a struggle against this one thing. Because the storm killer is dry land. Once these storms come on land and lose the fuel of the ocean, they break up and they die. If you're kind of a weather nerd, you may actually remember that Hurricane Sandy was massive. It was a huge kind of round storm. When it came on land, the eye of the storm made it to Long Island, and the bottom half of the storm broke up and never, never made it. Only half the storm ever landed. Now, we still had the storm surge and catastrophic damage. I know that. But the dry land killed off that storm, just like it has every other storm. The biggest storm in the entire galaxy is the great red spot on Jupiter. You've heard of this, right? It's two or three times the size of the Earth. It doesn't look so big when it's on Jupiter, but it's massive. And it's existed 
for hundreds of years, and we say that because it's been hundreds of years that we've been able to see Jupiter. So we don't actually know when it started. Now, Jupiter, going back to, you know, elementary science here just for a minute, Jupiter is a gas ball planet. So there is something Jupiter does not have. That is hard, dry land. It doesn't exist. So scientists say there is nothing to break up this storm. There is no land to break it up. It will be fueled potentially forever by its atmospheric conditions. For us, we have this storm killer. In the spiritual storms our families face, we have to engage the only one who can fight spiritually on our behalf. That is why families must cultivate a culture of prayer within the home. When we bring our storms to the cross, we will see healing and forgiveness. We will see restoration and growth. We will see reconciliation and true community. Moore says it this way, the only safe harbor for a storm-tossed family is a nail-scarred the only storm killer that exists is to engage your spiritual father to come and to fight these battles on your behalf. So to create a culture of family prayer is to apply spiritual principles and spiritual power to your spiritual battle. So how can you and your family grow in a pattern of prayer this week? I don't know. You might pray before meals. If you do, do better. Spend more time in prayer. But do you pray at any other time? Does your family pray together in the morning? Does your family pray together in the evening? Have you ever knelt as a family all in a row on the couch? Have you ever had a time of prayer that's dedicated to a certain topic? Have you ever brought the family and said, let's have a prayer of thanksgiving today? Do you bring the needs of your extended family to your immediate family and pray for them? There are so many different ways that this can manifest itself in your situation that I would encourage you Think about that and talk about that this week. As a family, say, do we have a culture of prayer? And let prayer be the eye of the storm for your family. That quiet and calm place in the center where you know you're protected from all of the storms that rage around. Because if you look at our psalm, it goes on beginning at verse 28. It says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Just how it started. That is our goal today, to cry out to the Lord in our storm so that he will bring us out of distress. He will still the storms, guide us to our haven, and we will give thanks for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up right now, and Sarah's going to come up as well. And they're going to lead us in a time of communion. And this is the time as a spiritual family that we come together because of the storm that we've experienced of sin has been forever spoken to by the cross. And so in these moments, don't shy away from contemplation or, or from confession and know that God meets us here. He meets us in these times and he meets us in these places. So let's pray together. God, we worship you here today and we're so thankful for this time that we've spent studying your word. Thank you for family. Family is never easy, but it's a gift from you. I pray that you would lead us in these coming weeks and months for how our families can grow in the areas that you have called us to. 
So we pray this in Jesus' name.